about 10 or 15 years ago, um, I was working as a counselor uh, down in New Jersey at a, as a at a residential treatment facility called Ranch Hope. And Ranch Hope, uh, we, we've worked with primarily juvenile delinquents, and one of the modes of therapy we did there was called equine therapy. And what that involved was me and another person, we would, we would take our group of guys out into the field, and they're, like each, we'd give each kid a horse. They've never seen horses, many of them, but they would have a horse nonetheless. And then we would instruct them, we'd say, hey, couple rules. Don't go behind the horse, never approach a horse from behind, and also no hitting the horse. I know that might seem like common sense to many of us, but we had to give these rules to these kids. And then we would give them a task, and we'd say, hey, each of you take a horse, and we want you to get your horse to put its front two hooves in a tire. All right? And so we'd sit there and we'd watch the kids. And the goal is we'd watch how they're interacting and watching uh, you know, how they're communicating. And eventually we'll talk about that in a, in a, in a session later. We'll debrief about it. Well, you know, as we're sitting there watching, we see uh, one of the, the boys start to make it a competition, right? They're, I'm going to be the first one to get my horse's hooves in that, in that wheel. Like, what a weird competition, right? And so we, we're, I'm watching this one kid in particular. He'd been, he'd been a little bit rough lately. And he, um, he goes up to the horse, and at first he's like, come on, let's go, let's go, come on, let's go. Horse is like, who are you? Why am I going to listen to you, right? And then he's like, all right, come on, come on. And he goes over and he kind of tries to get that horse in a little bit of a headlock and pulls the horse along, and the horse isn't budging, right? And so he starts getting frustrated. He starts pulling the hair. We're like, hey, 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 don't pull the horse's hair. All right, fine. So he gets more frustrated, and he, he like kind of shoves the horse, and then he walks over, and we see him like, all right, he's going over to the bridles. Like that, that, we'll see how this goes. And instead of taking a bridle, he takes one of the lead ropes, and he walks over to the horse and whips it. We're like, oh, you can't hit the horse. He's like, I didn't hit it, I whipped it. Right? We're like, that, that still counts. No whipping, no hitting the horse. And so, you know, we continue to watch, and he gets more frustrated, and we're like, put the rope down. He puts it down, and few minutes go by and we see him go back over to the bridles and we're like, okay, he's going to get the, go get another bridle. And he picks up another rope and he starts walking back over the horse. And we're like, and I just yell out, don't do it. We watch him continue towards the horse and we see the, I see the horse's ears go back. Some of you know what that means. All right. And he begins to come up behind the horse. And I, I, I look at my, me and my friend are sitting there on the, on the, on the fence. I'm like, you going to say anything? And he goes, he's about to learn. <laughs> and sure enough, man, this kid goes flying. It felt like it was like 20 feet, right? Lands on his back in the mud, like got kicked straight in the chest, right? And I remember like all the kids, everybody just stops like, oh no. And I'm sitting there on the fence thinking, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And, and we went over, we helped him out of the mud, and, and we brought him to the nurse, and he's got a big old welt and bruise on his chest. And, and, and we go to our, our therapy session that night, and we're like, hey, man, what was going on? We gave you warning after warning after warning, and you have a big, powerful horse. What did you think was going to happen? We told you you were going to get kicked. And his response was, I wanted to win. And that sounds ridiculous, right? That he's going to ignore the warnings. He's going to smack a giant horse. I mean, this thing was like, I mean, it was one of our biggest ones. Um, and, and, but it's, there's a, 
it's crazy what pride will do in a person, right? He wanted to win. He wanted to be seen as powerful, and he's going to win this at all costs. And so he ignores the warnings, and he's confronted with the power of the horse. Well, today we're going to be taking a look at the book of Exodus. And in this, we're going to be taking a look at Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh is going to be put in a new position. He's going to be encountering something he's never seen before. He's, he's never encountered God before. And even though he's given warning after warning after warning, Pharaoh's going to get kicked pretty hard. And he's going to learn the hard way. And so there's some lessons that we're going to take from this. Uh, we're going to see what's going on in this. Uh, for those of you guys who haven't been here in a while, we're, we're, you know, we're kind of going through uh, the whole Bible in one year. And so today we are going to be rapid fire through a lot here. Um, so I want you to bear with me. But if you guys want to turn in your uh, Bibles to Exodus 5. And I'll kind of catch us up a little bit to where we're at here. So God is a chosen people, tells Abraham, uh, your, it's through your line, you're going to be a great nation, I'm going, to, I'm going to bless those who bless you, I'm going to curse those who curse you, and he's going to give them this land, right? And, and so God has a specific chosen people, and it goes down through, through Jacob, whose name changes to Israel, right? And then there's a famine in the land, and so the nation of Israel flees the famine to go to Egypt, where God has worked through you know, the evil intentions of Joseph's brother, to provide a place where, hey, the, now the Israelites are going to be accepted here in the kingdom of Egypt, and they're going to be provided for. So a lot of years go by, and uh, uh, pro- roughly like 400-some years go by, and that Pharaoh dies, and Joseph dies, and his brothers die. And so we have a whole new generation that's raised up here. And the new Pharaoh doesn't remember what a cool guy Joseph was. In fact, he sees all these immigrants, all these Israelites, as immigrants in his land. They're eating all their food. They're taking up the land. And man, there's a lot of them. And he starts to get worried. Man, there's, they're about to, it feels like they're about to outnumber us. And so Pharaoh decides to do what any good Pharaoh would do, and he makes them all slaves. Right? That'll surely take away their power. And so he enslaves the nation of Israel, who's, who's been settling here in Egypt. And he begins to make them work hard, and, and they're making bricks for him, and they're building buildings for him, um, like kind of amassing his empire. Well, even under this persecution, the Israelites persist, and they keep reproducing, and there's even more of them now. And so he says, all right, we're going to start killing off all the newborn male babies. And so there's this genocide of Israelite male newborns, throwing them in the river, drowning them, right? And so the people of Israel now find themselves in a terrible position. They're enslaved, they're being murdered, and they're feeling hopeless. And so they cry out to God, the God of their fathers, the God of Jacob and, and, and Abraham, They cry for help, and God hears their cry. And God sends a really unlikely hero to them. He sends Moses. Moses is a guy who, um, he escaped that genocide through a a series of just miraculous events that God orchestrated. He murders a man, flees into the desert to escape any, like, punishment for this. And then God chooses him. God calls him out and says, hey, I need you to do something for me. You're going to be the one who's going to lead my people out of slavery. 
you're going to be the one who's going to, who's going to get them out of Egypt. And Moses is like, well, I, but not me. I can't speak good. Right? And so God says, it's all right. I'll give you your brother Aaron. He'll work with you. And so the two of them, are. God tells them this plan he's going to have. And he kind of gives them this forewarning of, of the things that they're about to encounter with Pharaoh. And so the two of them approach Pharaoh, and this is where we're going to pick up here. Said, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord said. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let, uh, and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let these people go. See, for the Pharaoh, and this is something that's going to be important for us to keep in mind, he is not threatened by another god. Egypt's got tons of gods, right? This is, this is a polytheistic society in which he, the Pharaoh himself, is also considered a god. And so to hear that there's another god out there, he's not, he's not terribly worried about this. And you're telling me that you're going to take time off of, uh, from my workforce? I got buildings to build, right? And so Pharaoh is like, no, this is ridiculous. Why should I listen to you? And so he's like, hey, you know what? If they got time to go in the wilderness and have a little festival, they got time to do more work. And so he makes things exponentially worse for them. I can't advance my slide right now. There we go. And so what he says is, uh, you guys are going to continue to make bricks just the way you have, but now you have to go source the materials for it. You guys have to go get the straw that we use to make the bricks. And lest you think that we will let, we'll count this as your normal work week, no, you still have to make the same amount of bricks, just now you have to go do this as well. So the burden is heaped on. Now all of the nation of Israel is like, oh, this is so much worse than it was before. Right? And there's this cry out to God, God, like, it would have just been better if we didn't say anything. What, what's happening? Like, this is, this is a terrible situation. We're already enslaved. We're already being murdered. We're already being persecuted. Now we have these harsh taskmasters who are, like, pushing us even harder. It's a terrible situation. So they cry out. Moses and Aaron petition God. And we see God's answer here in uh, Exodus 6, 1 through 8. Says, then the Lord told Moses, now you'll see that I, uh, what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave this land. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. And I reaffirmed my covenant with them. Under its terms, I promised to give them the land of Canaan, where they uh, were living as foreigners. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel, who are now slaves to the Egyptians, and I am well aware of my covenant with them. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from the oppression, and I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from the oppression in Egypt. There's a couple big things here, right? First, they have this reassurance, this promise from God. And these people haven't had, an, it doesn't appear that they've had an encounter like this. So this new generation is hearing for the first time, I am going to be your God. 
and I'm going to reveal to you who I am. And that's really going to be one of the key things we see as we look at these plagues, who God reveals himself to be to Egypt. They're going to see him as a, as a judge, an all-powerful God. To Israel, they're also going to see him as a savior. And he says he's going to exact judgment in this, and that judgment's going to come in what we call the ten plagues. Now, the ten plagues are kind of broke up into like a little series of, uh, there's three sets of three plagues, the first three plagues, right? So the first, in, in each of those sets, the first two, God gives a warning, sends Moses and Aaron to tell the Pharaoh, gives them a warning of what's going to happen, gives them a chance to make, like not allow this to happen. And each time the Pharaoh is like, no. And so then God sends, sends the plague. And then Pharaoh, um, in almost all of them, except for the first one, I guess, uh, basically says, hey, fix this. Talk to God. Fix this for us. And they fi God, fi God fixes it. He takes the plague away. And then um, he recants. He's like, ah, you know what? I'm not going to let your people go do this. And so we're going to see this over and over. The third plague in each of those sets, there's not a warning. We hear that the, that the Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And so then God just, boom. Now, we don't have time this morning to go through every plague, but I do want to talk to you about some because I remember in Sunday school growing up, you know, you kind of get the surfacey thing and it's like, ew, frogs are icky, lice and gnats, that's so gross, right? I remember like trying to think of which would be the worst. I mean, obviously the 10th one's the worst, right? But which one's the grossest before that? But there's a lot more depth to it than just, oh, these seem irritating or these seem devastating, there's a lot more kind of going on behind the scenes that I want to explore with you guys this morning. So, first plague, uh, Exodus 7, uh, 14 through 18. I invite you guys to turn there. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn, and he still refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes down to the river. Stand on the bank of the Nile and meet him there. Be sure to take along the staff that turned into a snake. They announce, uh, then announce to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. Until now, you have refused to listen. So this is what the Lord says. I will show you. I will show you that I am the Lord. Look, I will strike the water of the Nile with a staff in my hand and the river will turn to blood. The fish in it will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink any water from the Nile. Now, Let's talk a little bit about the Nile here, because this is a really important part of Egypt. I, I trust many of you guys know a little bit about this, but the Nile, like Egypt is a lot of barren wasteland or wilderness. But the Nile running through it provides like an incredible source of water. It's what allows the people to live there, to sustain their crops. It's, it's what provides most of their potable water that they can drink. It's what they'll use to bathe. It's what they'll use to feed their animals. They will, like each year, the Nile River will flood. And they, would, they, they actually would base their whole calendar system on this. And they had like these, this irrigation systems that they would kind of trap the water. And, and, and it would allow all the, the silt and things that were carried downstream to enrich the soil and moisten it so that, hey, now crops can grow. And it was, it was, it was such that when things like the famine were happening the land there was so fertile, which you wouldn't necessarily expect from Egypt, the land was so fertile that Israel came down to it. They heard about this. So the Nile's a really big deal. 
And in fact, it's such a big deal that many of the Egyptians tried to make meaning of it, and they would actually worship the Nile. We have records of hymns that would be sung to the Nile. And many of their gods that they created were based around the Nile. Two of them, um, in particular, uh, we have, uh, what is it, it's Kunum, Kunum, I don't know how to pronounce them exactly, it didn't take Coptic or Egyptian or anything. Um, but he was, he was seen as the god of the river itself, and then the other one was Happy, uh, which is, means what it is is. Uh, but happy was this God, and it would represent life and fertility, and it, and, and it controlled the floodwaters. And the reality was, if it flooded too much, their houses would get, could get damaged and destroyed. If it flooded too little, there would be a famine in the land. And so it was kind of this, we really need it to be just right. This was, God, when, by doing this plague, is attack, like not only attacking kind of the lifeblood of this place, but he's also saying, you know, they're worshiping these gods who rule over it. And here we are seeing that Yahweh is acting over those gods, demonstrating that he has greater power than these gods, demonstrating that he has power over life and, and over creation. And there's another aspect. It's not clear. Uh, the word for Hebrew, uh, the word in Hebrew for um, blood is also the same word for red. Kind of, and, and, and so it could be that the water is just red and polluted. It's not clear, right? It's kind of like how we have oranges, which are the color orange, but we also have a color called orange, right? And so and I say that because it might help explain, we don't know exactly what's going on with these magicians, but we hear in this text that the magicians are consulted. They have this big national crisis going on, and Pharaoh calls together this group. And, and calling him a magician the way we think of magicians, this is probably not the most accurate understanding of who they are. These were, these were very learned priests of the time. And they were definitely dealing with some, like, the, the Bible calls it secretive arts, right? Maybe some occultish or demonic practices. But they also had a lot of science, and they, and they, and they kind of were, they were a crafty group. And so these guys are confronted with this situation, Hey, we, are, we have a national crisis. There's like hardly any water left to drink. And so they say, oh, no, this is crazy. Hey, can we go to the Pharaoh's Reserve and, and see that fresh water? And they go to the Pharaoh's Reserve and see the fresh water. like, hey, look, now that's dirty too, right? Somehow they're able to replicate this plague, but it's in like the most heartless, non-caring way, right? They have a crisis. They need the water. And rather than trying to uh, like cleanse this water and demonstrate that their God had uh, more power. Instead, they just kind of add to the current problem. And it really goes to show you the way, how much they're going out of their way to try to discredit Yahweh, right? It's very important for them to, they, they have a clear understanding of what this means. And they want to say, hey, this God of Moses, he's not, he's not more powerful than us. We don't have to worry about this. And it works, the Pharaoh just kind of appears to just go about his business. I'm not worried about this situation. Kind of ignores it. And so God sends the next plague. This time, frogs. This time, representing another god, Heket. This, the, these frogs, this is kind of funny. There's so many frogs in the land, and they want to get rid of them. But frogs, because of Heket, are seen as sacred. And so they're not allowed to kill any of the frogs. 
And then to make matters worse, the priests get together again and say, oh, well, we can fix this too. More frogs. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being an Egyptian right now? How ticked you are at your leadership, right? We have this terrible crisis. The frogs are on my dinner plate. They're in the bed with me. And now my leadership fixes it by adding more? Like, not happy. Not happy to be in Egypt right now. But it does make an interesting question here. How? You can imagine that, like, oh, right, uh, the, the Nile River was polluted. Uh, there could be any number of things that, that, could, that could cause that. But replicating frogs, this kind of gives you a little bit more pause, right? Like, that doesn't seem like something that, I mean, we don't know. The Bible's not clear on this, right? It, maybe they could have been doing something, like, sneaky or tricky. But the reality is, there's an uncomfortable truth that sometimes as Christians, we don't like to think about. And that's that there is a real spiritual realm. And there is real powers and forces at work. Right after talking about the uh, armor of God uh, in Ephesians 6.12, it says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and against authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. I don't know about you, that's kind of like icky feeling to me, right? We like to know and see what's right in front of us. And some people will go to the opposite extreme and associate every hardship in life, every toil, every temptation they face as Satan is against me. Well, that's not really true. Satan's not omnipotent, and no offense, but, or omnipresent, but he's got bigger fish to fry than you probably, right? Because we do know that it does, like, sin comes from our own heart and temptation, our own pride. But that doesn't mean that there aren't real forces at play, and it's something for us to be mindful of. We don't want to minimize that kind of activity, and it's important for us, you know, I'm not trying to knock on Halloween. I, I'm not making any judgment calls on that. But when we start dabbling and moving into the spiritual realm, I think as Christians, it's very important for us to be discerning and to recognize that these are, or there are real forces out there, and they're not weak. They are things that God empowers us to stand against, it's not by your own strength, but these aren't things to trifle with either. At the same time, we don't need to be afraid because we see in 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. And he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As believers, we don't need to fear these things, but it's important for us to be knowledgeable of their existence. And so it's, it's, it's very plausible that there is some type of demonic activity happening here. Um, don't know. But we see something interesting happen from Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh said, why should I listen to you? Well, now he's changing his tune a bit. He's saying, plead to your God. He's recognizing that there is a God of Moses. And he's asking Moses, hey, please, we, now we just have more frogs. We have no way of getting rid of them. Fix this. And there's part of me that, like, I was like, yeah, he's starting to get it, right? But it's one thing to believe in his existence, a whole other thing to have faith in him and follow him. And in fact, in the story, in the issue of the Pharaoh, around the eighth plague, he's going to say, I have sinned against God. He admits his sin, and yet he doesn't turn from it. That's a big difference, right? That's the difference between confession or admission and repentance. He has not turned from his sin, and we see this continuous hardening of his heart because there's a selfishness to him. The Pharaoh wants 
to keep his workforce. He wants to maintain power and control. He doesn't want to be seen as, as humble or weak in this situation. And so uh, Moses uh, talks to God again, and God uh, removes the frogs from the land, and there's respite, and of course, uh, Pharaoh hardens his heart, says in verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron as the Lord had said. You know, it's easy sometimes to follow God when there's no problems, right? It's easy to follow God and, and even to live in, or it's, I'm sorry, it's easy to, almost to like live in sin when we don't face the consequences of it. And that's exactly what's happening here. Things are going, all right, things are back to normal. Egypt's looking pretty. I mean, we've got that mound of frogs over here. But apart from that, it's looking pretty good. How quickly do we do the same thing? We experience that conviction in our life. We recognize, like, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing the right thing. And then very quickly, when, when we experience that, that relief of forgiveness, do we just turn back to our old ways? Again, there's not repentance, and God sends this third plague, and this is one of the ones without warning. This is gnats and lice, and there's an interesting thing that happens here because those magicians who are able to make frogs, for some reason, can't make gnats and lice. I don't know why, right? But they're not able to, and the magicians now recognize something that Pharaoh doesn't. They say, this is the finger of God. This is something greater than what we know. Like, they're looking at this, and I, you, you have to wonder, you know, what's happening in these guys' hearts? Because they can't replicate this. Their deities can't replicate this. It's clearly demonstrating control over those things. And so the priests begin to point to Yahweh. But Pharaoh has hardened his heart again. And getting back to what I said earlier, the Pharaoh is taught and believes and has grown to think he is God also. So there is this like defiant self here. It's a, it's, a, it's a God little G versus God big G. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can look at Pharaoh in and, and the same way I looked at that student at Ranch Hope and I can be like, this is, you know, you love to see the justice happen, but it's terrible if you're the one getting kicked. And sometimes I think that we can act a little bit more like Pharaoh than we want to admit. I think we like to be the gods of our own lives. We like to be in control. We like to, to make our own lives and build our own, make our own plans and go our own direction. We like our creature comforts. We like, we, we, we like to get the glory for the things and the gifts and the abilities that God has given us. We don't necessarily like to point it back to him. As believers, you know, we, we, we have this struggle, right, where, where we are called to be yielding to God, to be dying to ourselves, but it's this pride that's in our hearts that we still think that we can rule it. And that's very much the same thing that Pharaoh's going through. And so God's going to continue to send plague after plague after plague. And we're going to see these attacks of livestock and boils. But God is actually going to start, uh, starting in the fourth plague, he's going to keep his people separate from these things. So there's going to be darkness and flies in, that, that cover the whole land except for this area of Goshen where, where the Israelites are living. And he's doing this to kind of set them apart, right? So Pharaoh can't say, oh, this is just a natural phenomenon. No, these, the people are being preserved here. 
I would love to know what it was like for this blinding darkness, the, the ninth plague happens, blinding darkness, the people can't even move around, it's so dark. And yet it says that in Goshen, it's just like normal. It's like a normal sunny day out. I, I would love to know what that looked like, right? That contrast there. But God is protecting and preserving his people. And then we see that God is gracious when it comes to plague number seven because he makes provision for Egyptians at this point. He says, I'm going to send a big hailstorm and, and it's going to kill everything. So I'm giving you a warning. If you believe me, bring your animals, bring your people inside. I don't know what Egyptian is thinking. Well, I just went through six plagues in the last couple weeks. I'm going to chance it. I think this is bluffing. It's crazy, right? But some of them don't listen. Like, this is a really good reflection of the human condition, our human hearts, right? They think, ah, it's not that going to be that bad. A little snow in Egypt, no big deal. And, but God makes this provision for these people. And so many Egyptians bring in their cattle, bring in their animals, and their, and their lives are saved through this. And I have to wonder, later when we see uh, the, they are fle everybody's fleeing Egypt, the Israelites are fleeing Egypt, it says they're a mixed multitude, and I have to wonder if some of those Egyptians who believed are in that crowd. But we see God being gracious even in this. And so just to recap, we're seeing Yahweh is greater. Yahweh is a judge. Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is faithful. These are the things he's revealing about himself. But there's also a cool picture in here because the story of Exodus, of the Exodus, in the 10 plagues and the Passover that we're going to get to, paints a greater picture of the work that God's going to be doing. It's almost prophetic in nature, right? In a real sense, through this, the world is going to get a snapshot, a picture of who the Lord is. We know, like, as we've been studying through the Bible, we, we saw Adam and Eve, and, and they sinned against God. And so as a result, sin and death enter, and pain enter the world, and, the, and, it's, and it's this a, a terrible fallen place to live. Well, that is represented in, the, or in Egypt here. The slavery that they undergo, we're, we're told many times in Scripture, is, like the, is analogous to the bondage of sin and death. Right? We can't do anything on our own efforts to fix it. We can't escape it on our own, under our own power. We are enslaved to it and enslaved to the penalty of it. Pharaoh is an archetype of Satan. Christ is going to be an archetype of Moses. Right? The, the rescuer, the one who's going to come and lead his people. And those who follow, those who, who engage in the Exodus, those who follow that Savior, will, will see salvation. Those who remain will experience judgment. And so you see it's a real picture of, of the gospel here. Those who place their faith in God will be saved. And knowing that this is, there's a lot of ana uh, analogy that's happening here, we see uh, even in the Pharaoh's actions. One of the things that the Pharaoh says, who's represent, you know, representative of Satan, is like, you know, Moses and Aaron are like, hey, let our people go. Let, let us go worship God. And he says, hey, yeah, yeah, sure, you guys can go worship. You know what? Go worship, but don't go away. Just do it like right here. Right? You don't have to go into the wilderness. Now, for sure, there was like some nefarious intent or like suspicion on Pharaoh's part. But the reality is that same tactic is used in our, the lives of Christians. 
It's easy for us. We, we live in this fallen world. We're called, as believers, we are removed from it. Now we're aliens. We have given a new life. And, and yet we want to live in this world in, as if it's our home. We don't want to necessarily look different than the world around us. We don't want our lives to drastically change. Right? We, things are comfortable here. Or Pharaoh says, hey, you know what? You can go out, but don't go too far. This idea that we can have our foot in the world and our one foot in, in, in following Christ. Life doesn't work that way. And then he says, hey, fine, you can go out, but leave your women, the women and children behind. Just the men can go out. Again, where your heart is, or where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The things that you care about. And, and we see that in the lives of so many believers, right? We get saved and we have that joy of our salvation. And now we begin this new adventure with God. And over time, we start to look back. Oh, that, that old way of life, that was, that was kind of fun. Or we start to miss those things. Maybe we start to dabble a little bit more into them, right? There's this aspect that sin can ensnare us and pull us back in. And we see those same things happening here. Ephesians 6, 10 through 11 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take a stand against the devil's evil schemes. Put on faith. Put on truth. Set our sights on him. The Pharaoh continues to harden his heart here. And God hands him over to his sin. It says, it says in, in the terms that he uses, this, God hardened his heart. It's this picture of God just saying, you know what? This is what you want. You're going you're to reap the consequences. And it comes in the form of the Passover. If you guys want to look at Exodus 11, uh, 4 through 7. It says, Moses had announced to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. At midnight tonight, I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All of the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt. From the oldest son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne who's also, by the way, considered a, a god, to the oldest son of the lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. Then a loud wailing will rise throughout all of Egypt, a wail no one has ever heard before or ever will hear again. And it goes on to talk about how in, in Goshen, where the Israelites are living, not even a dog's going to bark. There's a sense of like, it's just going to be peace. And so you have this terrible judgment. It sounds, it's kind of icky, right? We don't want to think of God as going over the land and killing all the firstborn. But the reality is, God has selected Israel as his firstborn. And so a just God is going to be extracting vengeance. And he's going to be repaying the Pharaoh in the exact currency that the Pharaoh was using. And so we hear the plan. This is what's going to happen. And God talks, has Moses speak to the Israelites and tells them how he's going to provide for them. And it's going to be a little bit different this time. If we want to look at uh, Exodus 12, 6 through 10, it says this. Take special care of, this cho uh, of the chosen... I'm sorry. Let me back up a second. God is about to do a miraculous work. He's going to be removing this large workforce, these enslaved people, moving them out of the land of Egypt, one of the most powerful governments of this time. And it's going to be such a great work that God is telling them in advance, 
Mark it on your calendars. Remember this. A year from now, you're going to be celebrating this. Remember this day. And he doesn't just say, like, hey, mark it on your calendars. He says, rearrange your whole calendar. This is the most important thing. Make this the start of your new calendar. Right? That's the level of, of, uh, of miracle that God's going to be performing here. So picking up in 6 through 10, it says, Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the house where they will eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over the fire. Don't leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before the morning. Now, let's break down a little bit about what's happening here. God is now instituting this feast because he wants his people to remember. And this might seem like a really weird thing to remember, but it's going to be, you know, this is their, you have to remember, this is some of their first encounters with God. And sometimes in our life, we can see God do amazing things. You remember, some of you guys will remember when you were saved, right? And you, or you remember how God worked and he answered a prayer. But then life goes on, and sometimes we feel alone. Sometimes we face new hardships, and things are scary. Sometimes we come to places where we're doubting or questioning God or his presence or his love or his character. And so it's times like this that's so important for us to have these, these things to hold on to and say, no, things are terrible right now, but I remember. I remember when God rescued me. I remember when I was hopeless and I was helpless and I was, and I was ensnared in sin. I remember the way God moved and God worked in my life then. And that's what God wants them to remember. He wants them to hold on to this. And he wants them to use it as a way to, by recognizing these things, worship, bring them to worshiping him. And so we see part of that is in the form of these bitter herbs. Nobody likes salad. If you're in here and you say you like salad, you're lying to me. It's disgusting. <laughs> bitter herbs especially, right? That's the worst part of salad. When you get that mixed green, you're like, ooh, what's that? Right? I'm just kidding. Salad's cool. It's fine. But the idea of the bitter herbs is to, is to paint this picture of, like, it's to remind the people of the suffering, right? The suffering of eating a salad. No. The suffering of this, this, the, the, the slavery that they endured, the hardship that they endured, right? It's the pain, it's, as they eat it, they're supposed to be reminded of the, the suffering, how terrible this was. And as, an, as we said earlier, it's analogous to sin, and, or that slavery is analogous to our sinful living. Our sin should be something that is bitter to us, that's repugnant to us. Because until we start recognizing that sin is awful and not just allowing it to exist, not nah, everybody does this thing, it's fine. We need to get to a place where we recognize this isn't good, this isn't right. And it's only then that we can recognize the gravity of the grace that God gives us. Uh, Thomas Watson said, uh, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Now, again, another picture of, of uh, sin is uh, found in this, this unleavened bread that they're called to eat, right? Yeast, you're going to have yeast. I mean, the, those of you guys who bake, it's like that's such a fine grain, right? Or such a fine, it's, I guess it's a fungus. 
right? But a little tiny bit of it will, will change the shape of the dough from this flat thing. It's going to rise. It'll double. It'll triple in size, right? The little yeast does this invisible work of, of changing the consistency of the dough. And so the Bible uses yeast a lot to, as representative of sin. It's, it corrupts. It's, it's, it's insidious. It does an invisible work. And if you, when you have this little bit of sin, it can, it can form a, a stronghold in your life, a foothold in your life, and it can grow. And so in this passage, uh, they're going to be told to get it out of your house. Like, or, like in the same chapter, they're like, just not even a fleck of yeast should be in your house. Get it all out. I, I feel like that'd be like almost an impossible challenge knowing how small this is, right? But that's what they're called to do. And it's just, hey, you got to get the sin out of your life. See, a lot of times as Christians, it's another thing I think we forget sometimes. I, I know in my own heart, like in my own prayer life, sometimes I spend a whole lot of time praising God, recognizing the things he's doing, right, when, he, when, when things are good. Or I'll spend time praying for things that I, I see or I want. I, I do the whole adoration and praise, and I do the whole uh, supplication, but I forget the confession. It's not fun to confess. It's not fun to reflect on the ways that we've fallen short. And yet that's a, a, a vital part to a spiritual walk. We have to recognize the sin that's in our lives and not only recognize it, but unlike the Pharaoh, turn from it. The last part we see here is in the picture of the lamb. And we sang earlier, uh, worthy is the lamb. We know that Christ is, is uh, represented in the form of this lamb. <clears throat> it's kind of an awful picture you know, this is kind of a precursor to what's going to be introduced as the sacrificial system. This is a, uh, kind of a really gross thing. If you have a perfect, adorable, spotless lamb, who wants to kill that, right? Kill the ugly one. Kill the spotted one. I don't know. I don't know if it makes it better if any of them are killed, right? But you have this sense of, like, why does it have to, why does it have to be this? Why does it have to be spotless? They'd have it inspected to make sure, like, this is the right kind of lamb. Well, the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. You and I have acted in defiance of our creator God, the author of life, and we've sinned against him. And as a result, you and I deserve that death penalty. And God knows we deserve that death penalty. And there's nothing you and I can do to escape it. We can't be good enough. We can't do a certain amount of deeds that'll counterbalance We've acted in defiance, and the one who decides what is good and right is the judge of these things. And so we can't say, oh, well, I'll, you know, we can't have a spotted lamb. We can't say, all right, I'm not perfect. I know I deserve the death penalty, but hey, my friend over here said he'll die for me. Well, no, he deserves the death penalty too. The sacrifice has to be a perfect one, because otherwise everybody already deserves to die. And so God loves us. And in his grace and in his mercy, he sends his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. He's going to come and he's going to, just like this lamb would be, is going to be examined. He's going to go through trials. Pilate himself is going to wash his hands and say, hey, this guy's sinless. There's nothing wrong here. And he's going to be killed as the sacrifice for our sins so that through him, through believing in him, we can have forgiveness of sins and we can have eternal life. We can come out of the bondage and slavery from Exodus into worshiping him in the wilderness. This idea of the, the no leftovers um, shows that this is a complete work 
of God. Hebrews uh, 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Now, the other plagues that have happened where God has spared his people, they've just kind of sat back. When the darkness covered the land, they didn't have to do anything. It was still light there. The lights were still on. When the flies came and descended on Egypt, there was no flies in Goshen. They were still good. But there's a difference here. The Israelites are required to do something. Not only are they to sacrifice this lamb, but they're to apply the blood above the doorframe. There's an application process for the blood. It's not just about recognizing God or believing in him or saying he exists. It's about following him. It's about recognizing that we are sinners in need of a savior. It's about turning from that sin and pursuing him, recognizing that it's nothing that we did, but we are under the blood of Christ. That's why it's no surprise that it's at the very Passover supper that Jesus in his last night implements what we call communion. And it's at communion that, God's, that Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance, remember? Remembrance of me. God's about to do another mighty work that night. And he wants his disciples and he wants you and I to remember the, the freedom that, and the salvation that he's about to bring. And so he gives them the bread, the unleavened bread. And he gives them the cup, which is going to be representative of the blood that he's going to shed as payment for our sins. But I think it's really cool because you'll notice in this new feast that he gives us to remember him, two things are notably absent. There's no lamb. Because the lamb's already been slain. Christ made the perfect sacrifice. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. He died for the sins of all mankind. So that by believing in him, we can have forgiveness of those sins. And we can walk in a new life and, and we can have salvation through him. I think another part that's really cool is we don't see the bitter herbs. That'd be terrible for communion, right? We have to muscle those things down. But the idea that there's no bitter herbs, there's no more enslavement to sin. We don't need to experience the, the sorrow and the guilt that we once experienced. We have freedom in him. That is who God is. That is the work that he's performing. And God continues to stay true to his promises. We see that the Pharaoh is just grieved at the loss of his son and he sends the people away just as God said they, that he would. And the Israelites, they, they're all ready and they start marching out and they go and they, they get up to the Red Sea and, and the Egyptian army, Pharaoh hardens his heart and he sends the army out against them. And there's this moment where you're like, oh, what's going to happen? And God makes a way. He parts the Red Sea, the Israelites cross on dry land and then it was the Egyptian armies go into the sea to pursue them. God closes it in then they will know that I am Lord. We worship a great and powerful God who is both savior and judge. He rescues us and calls us out of sin. He empowers us to live for him. Will we be like Pharaoh, recognizing God, but living for ourselves and acting as our own God? Will we make compromises and not change really anything meaningful? continuing to live in the land of Egypt? Or will we repent of our sin, trust him, and step into the wilderness of sanctification and worship him? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, um, God, we thank you for sending your son as the sacrifice, as the payment for our sin. I thank you that you paint this beautiful picture and this illustration even here in the book of Exodus, Lord. God, I thank you that you are merciful, that you are gracious to us, that you are just. Lord, help us to be people who recognize uh, who you are in the work that you are doing and have done. And help us to follow after you. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.